Amen. And while there's some still, still some children's ministry workers in the lobby who can probably hear us, let's show our appreciation for them too. <laughs> uh, well, good morning again, church. Good to see you. Would love for you to open your Bible, if you have one, to Matthew 5, 43 to 48. Matthew 5, 43 to 48. As I mentioned last week, these two paragraphs together, running all the way from verse 38 to 48, uh, together represent kind of the twin peaks of the Sermon on the Mount in terms of its ethical requirements. Uh, There's a ton of overlap uh, between the ethical requirements of Christianity and the ethical requirements of other major world religions. Uh, Most major world religions are going to say something about uh, how it's important not to seduce your neighbor's spouse. Most of the major world religions are going to say something about how it's important for children to honor and uh, respect and obey their parents. Most major world religions are going to say something about the importance of property rights. All of that is, uh, is pretty common. There's about 70% overlap if you make a chart and line it all up between the ethical requirements of Christianity and the ethical requirements of the other major world religions. But in these two paragraphs right here, verses 38 to 48, we're in the second of them. In these two paragraphs, Jesus begins to leave all those other religions. You might call that sort of natural law, natural religion, the expression of the conscience, that kind of stuff, that which appears to be logical, rational, that which leads to human flourishing, all of that kind of, that kind of stuff. Jesus leaves that, that now and begins to ascend higher than those systems are going to take you. He begins to enter into some very rarefied air and to say things that only Jesus said and nobody but Jesus has ever said since. We're entering into the parts of the Christian ethical system that are absolutely unique. So I hope you brought your oxygen tank and a safety harness uh, today because we are climbing up into some high and heavy territory. Now, of course, just saying that makes me realize that we really ought to start with prayer, so let's do that. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask for your help today in the hearing and receiving of your word. Lord, I ask for your help today. This has not been a normal week for me. I I don't feel as prepared as I usually do. Lord, I don't feel like this is in my sweet spot. Not, Not much, if anything, in my personality inclines me in this direction. This, this feels as foreign to me as I'm sure it does to everyone here. Lord, I don't feel adequate for a task of this magnitude. And so I ask, Lord, that the Holy Spirit would be powerfully present among us, working inside every human heart to take hold of truths as they are presented to us in the pages of Holy Scripture. And we ask that now in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. All right, let's hear together now from God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word, starting at verse 43. This is Jesus speaking. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just And on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, 
as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, as we've been making our way through this middle section of the Sermon on the Mount, we've been talking again and again now about how Jesus here is raising the bar in in terms of, of how his disciples were understanding, defining, and practicing righteousness. He's saying, you know, uh, in, in Luke's version, he says, what credit is, is it to you? Here we've got what reward, like what benefit, what point is it? What good are you? Remember Jesus said in salt and light, because all this middle section is basically an expansion and an application of the command by Jesus to his disciples to be salt and light in the world. Remember Jesus said, what good is salt, right? If it loses its saltiness, it's no good. You just throw it out now and you trample it underfoot. Here Jesus is saying the same thing. What good is it? What credit is there? What value is it if you love people just the same way everybody else does? What, what, in all these sections about raising the bar, that's what Jesus is saying. What good is it? And notice that the, 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 the church is, if left to itself, the bar is always going to settle. It's going to drift downwards in the church. And here is Jesus putting it back up. Time, paragraph after paragraph after paragraph, Jesus is, is meeting the bar where it has settled and lifting it back where it ought to be. And saying, do you understand? No one's going to notice if, if you do sexuality just, just like the neighbors do. No one's going to notice if your bar for truth is the same bar as the bar of the neighbors. No one's going to notice if you do marriage the, the same way Everybody in town is doing marriage. You understand that, right? Nobody is going to notice. You are not going to have an effective witness if your approach to to mercy, that was the last paragraph, is the same as everyone else's approach. And here Jesus just takes it to the top, and he says, and no one is going to notice. No one is going to care, and you're not going to have a powerful witness in the community if your approach to love is the same as everyone else's approach. We have to maintain a different standard. We have to aspire to the standard set by God. Now, in terms of structure, I want to keep things simple. We'll talk about where where the religious leaders of the day had allowed the bar to fall. We'll talk about where Jesus readjusts it or puts it back. And then at the end, we'll ask the question I'm sure you're going to be asking in your heart, I'm asking in my heart, how in the world are we ever going to do this? All right, let's begin then with the old bar We see the old bar in verse 43. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, of course, if you're a Bible reader, you know there is no such verse in the Old Testament. Do you ever go looking for things uh, that are referenced in the New Testament? Do you think, wait a second, I have not encountered that in in, in my RMM readings. Uh, and, And of course, that's absolutely right. People were saying that, but it was not so. Uh, how, so we want to know, how, how did this misunderstanding of the Scriptures become common in Jesus' day? The commentators are really helpful here. D.A. Carson, for example, says, Some Jews took the word neighbor to be exclusive, as in, we are to love only our neighbors, they thought. And therefore, we are to hate our enemies. Another commentator provides a little helpful nuancing. He says, they, they seized, the, the Jewish leaders of the day, seized on the immediate context of the inconvenient command to love the neighbor, pointing out that Leviticus 19 is addressed to all the congregation of the people of Israel. Do you see that? And that's some fancy 
Some fancy Bible work right there, right? You got to be at least second year seminary before you can make the Bible mean the opposite of what it says. I mean, that's some, that's some fancy work, right? You seeing that? Are you seeing how easy it is for people who love the Bible and who read the Bible and who study the Bible to miss what the Bible actually says? And by the way, this is why it's so hard to argue with cultists, because the cultists will always say that they're, they're drawing their doctrines out of the Bible too, right? They'll come to you with a Bible, maybe a translation they made up on themselves, but they'll come to you with a Bible, right? And they'll say, no, no, what we believe is from the Bible. And it's hard to argue with them because they're usually reading the Bible poorly and selectively, which means the only way you can have a useful conversation with them is if you know the Bible really well and you read it really broadly, But that's, I mean, that's how you get a cult, by reading the Bible poorly and selectively. And that is how you get jaw-dropping misinterpretations like this one Jesus pushing back against here. Can we just stop and see that and be humbled by that? Can we just stop and see how easy it is to see what you want to see in the Bible and to justify what you want to justify from the Bible. Human beings are masterful at this. It is so easy to start with what you already believe or what you want to believe and then to stop reading once you see something that if you squint your eyes, tilt your head, and in a vague light might actually appear to support that and just stop reading there. So easy to miss the point and to distort the truth when you're reading the Bible through the lens of your pre-existing bias. That's what was happening here. The Pharisees wanted to believe that they were free to hate people outside their narrow little circles. And so they were always looking for limits, right, and loopholes. That's how you know you're a legalist. If your mind inclines to limits and loopholes, how much do I have to do? Or, stated negatively, how far can I go before it's a sin? By the way, I won't ask, don't put up your hand, uh, but you know, any young legalists in the church this morning asking that question, how far can I go before it's a sin? I'll tell you something, if you don't get over that kind of thinking as a 19-year-old or as a 20-year-old or as a 21-year-old, when you're 40 and 45 and 50, you'll be asking, how little can I do before it's a sin? Legalism and loopholes, right? That's just Pharisee. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 right? We're, we're, not, we're not doing this. This is not how we're going to live. The, the Pharisees were looking for how few people they could include in the category of, of neighbor. I mean, technically, right? Technically, there are only four houses in my village that are immediately adjacent to my house. So really, there's just a small number of people I'm required to love and a huge number of people I am free to despise at my leisure. That's, that's how the Pharisees were thinking. They had a very poor, very questionable interpretation of one passage, and they were completely ignoring other passages that ought to have spoken into their understanding. Passages like Exodus 23, 4 to 5, which says, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray. By the way, whose who's, who's donkey? Our enemy. Is enemy love taught in the Old Testament? You bet it is. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. See that? 
Friends, what's that passage saying? It's saying exactly the same thing that Jesus is saying here in the Sermon on the Mount. Again, Jesus is not being an innovator. He is being a biblical reformer. He is bringing all the Bible to bear as opposed to just those passages that confirm us in our naturally existing biases. The cultural leaders of the day had set the bar as low as it could possibly go. Right? This is basically how animals live. This... This is just animal instinct, right? Protect the herd, eat everyone else. That's what this is, this basic instinct. This is tribal ethic, and Jesus says, no, 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 no. We're not gonna live at the level of the lowest common denominator. What credit is it to you if you love people who love you? What credit is it to you if you're nice to your family and to your friends? Tax collectors do that. Gentiles do that. Dogs do that. The people of God need to be known for more than that. So Jesus rejects the old bar. All right, that's question one. Question two, where does he put the new bar? We see the new bar in verses 44 to 45. Again, it's framed antithetically, meaning in contrast to the standards of the day. Jesus says, you've heard what the Pharisees are saying. You've heard what passes for wisdom. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Did you notice that today? The rain that fell. All the farmers are, are receiving that rain, right? Not just the Christian farmers. Not just the farmers that paid their taxes. All the farmers receive that rain today. See, the new bar, Jesus says, the new bar is the perfect Love of God. That's the punchline he gives at the end of the passage, verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The Greek word used there for perfect actually means whole or complete. The implication being that, you know, that there's some holes, there's some breaks, there's some incompleteness in the circle of love being advocated by the Pharisees. It's leaving an awful lot of people out. The love of God, our Father and our Creator, on the other hand, is indiscriminate in terms of its general benevolence. That's the standard Jesus references. He makes the sun rise on the evil and the good alike. He sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. That's your bar, Jesus says. What theologians, theologians usually refer to as common grace. I want you to love like that, showing kindness mercy, and generosity to all people without distinction. That's the essence of the passage. Jesus is widening the circle of the people we are required to love. John Stotts is really helpfully here. He says, our neighbor in the vocabulary of God includes our enemy. What constitutes him our neighbor is simply that he is a fellow human being in need whose need we know and are in a position in some measure to relieve. Now, what does that sound like to you? That sounds like the parable of the Good Samaritan, doesn't it? The parable of the Good Samaritan is the Jesus-authorized illustration to this general principle. Can I show you just a quick little insight into the pastor's soul? Uh, I, I had a hard time this, this week preparing this message. Part of it was because I was knocked out of my general routine. I had, a, I had a series of meetings I had to attend in the middle of the week, and uh, it was just a crunchy, unusual week. But the other part is, I realized 
man, I can't just pull something out of my own life to illustrate this. You know why? Because I'm actually not very good at this. Like, we're into the rarefied air, you know? Like, yeah, I got some illustrations from my own life about how I've learned not to punch people in the face who punch me in the face, right? Like, because that's Christianity 101. I got some stories for you. But you, you start running out of stories about how to love your enemies like, like Jesus did. And you start going, like, where do we go for this? Uh, you know, I thought about, there's a great story about, uh, I, there's a guy in our community, I, met, I had breakfast with him. He was actually part of uh, the situation in Cambodia with the Khmer Rouge, where folks would go in and, and, and they butcher whole villages, and he ended up reckoning, you know, I could tell his story. It's tough to pull stuff like this out of your own life, isn't it? Because we're way up there now. And, and I think most of us, if we're honest, would say, hey, listen, this, this is one of those passages that shows up where I need to grow. So thank God for Jesus-authorized illustrations. I'm glad Jesus told the story. Otherwise, we might be just like, you know, so there it is, go home. Jesus-authorized illustration. Man, I'm thankful for that. Thankful for the story of the Good Samaritan. Thankful for Sunday school. That's where you learn all these stories that don't mean much to you as a kid, but then later when you're dealing with difficult truths and you're looking for pictures of what this would actually look like in real life, man, all those stories all of a sudden make sense to you in a new way. Maybe you remember this one from Sunday school. Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. It's about a guy, Samaritan. Well, it's about a first guy first. A Jewish guy who was walking on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's a dangerous road. And he got waylaid by a couple of robbers who took all his stuff and beat him up really bad and left him on the side of the road for dead. And then you remember the story. A priest goes by. But the priest passes by on the other side of the road. He, he doesn't feel any obligation to show love to this, to this brother. And plus, if he got involved, if he got his hands dirty, he was obviously on his way up to the temple to serve his rotation. Had he had contact with the blood and the brokenness of this body, he would have been religiously disqualified. He wouldn't have been able to serve his rotation. So out of piety, he probably thought he was doing the Lord a favor. He passes by on the other side of the road. Levite comes by. He's got his own reasons. He's in a hurry, right? This guy's not from my tribe. And so he, he, he passes by. And then a little while later, a Samaritan goes by, and the Jews hated the Samaritans, and the Samaritans hated them back. But he sees this, this man, and he takes pity on him. He says he, he takes him up, he picks him up, he puts him on his own donkey, takes him to an inn, he puts him in a room, he cleans out his womb, he does basic medical care, cleans out his womb, puts, puts oil in the wounds, bandages him up, and then he pays the innkeeper for however long this, this person needs to convalesce. And, and Jesus tells that story, and then he says to the man whose question occasioned the story, he says, which of these three <clears throat> do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy, and Jesus said, you go and do likewise. Are you seeing that? Jesus told this story in answer to the question, who is my neighbor? Are you seeing that? In Jesus' day, the Pharisees were trying to shrink the circle of neighbor to about four houses wide. And this is Jesus pushing back, pushing the circle out as far and as wide as it could possibly go. He is saying that your neighbor is anyone in need. 
Doesn't matter if you are related to them. It doesn't matter if they're from your tribe. It doesn't matter if they're your friend. It doesn't matter if they hate you. It doesn't matter if they want to kill you. Your neighbor is anyone in need. If you want to be sons of the Father, you need to love like the Father loves. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's the gospel, right? That's the bar, and that's the witness that we are called to manifest in the world as the people of God. Now, because we are the people of God and not actually God, our reach will never be as long as the reach of God himself, but our hands must always be as open as his hands are. Let me see if I can get that John Stott quote up for you again. Can we do that? There we go. I want you to just hear the pastoral wisdom in this. Now, this was written before the internet. This was written before Twitter, but man, this ministered to my soul. Let me read that to you again. Our neighbor in the vocabulary of God includes our enemy. What constitutes him our neighbor is simply that he is a fellow human being in need. Listen to this. Whose need we know and are in a position in some measure to relieve. Isn't that helpful? Your job is to love everyone without distinction, not to love everyone without exception. Because you can't do that. You you can't do that. You are a finite creature trying to imitate an infinite God. So the bar here has to do with width, not reach. Man, this is so important for us to see. A part of the reason that that people are so stressed out today in our modern world is that because of the internet, because of that phone in your hand, right, because of cable news, we are aware of every need that exists in the universe. But we're actually still not capable of doing much beyond arm's reach. That creates stress, doesn't it? You know, in this story, the Good Samaritan helped a man that he met on the side of the road that he was traveling on. He ministered to him out of resources that he had at hand. The part of the stress for us is that today, while we're walking along the road to Jericho, we're watching news from Ukraine, news from North Korea, news from all over the world. We're seeing people on the side of the road everywhere on planet Earth, which is interesting because it causes us to actually miss the guy on the side of the road. So we're, we're seeing, we're obsessed with needs we have no capacity to to alleviate such that we actually are taken out of, of the business of being neighbor to those at hand. It's it's a huge, huge source of stress. But thankfully, the the Good Samaritan parable and the teaching here in the Sermon on the Mount is calling for an approach to love that lives much closer to home. Jesus is talking about our day-to-day interactions here with the people we meet on the side of the road that we encounter in life. He's saying that we are to love and to bless as far and as wide as God Almighty who makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. That's the new bar. And of course, it was the original bar as, as well in the Old Testament passages like Exodus 23 though it had been ignored and obscured by the leaders of the day. Now, 
as we said last week, identifying the peak of Christian ethics is wonderful, it's marvelous, it's exciting. But how in the world can we be expected to achieve or even approach this lofty standard? That's where I want to end today. I just want to ask a very practical question. How in the world are we ever actually going to do this? I want to try and give you two answers to that, and the first one is by far the most important. So if you have limited amounts of ink left in your pen, save it for this one here. We can only scale this exalted summit. We can only approach this lofty standard, of course, with the help and by the grace that God supplies. There's, there is no way to do this in your own power. This is not human instinct. Remember I talked about how there's, uh, you know, different estimates, I suppose, but any, anyway, uh, substantial overlap between the ethical system, and of course, Christianity is more than an ethical system. I, I, I would hate for you to hear me saying Christianity and other religions are the same. That's not at all what I'm saying. I'm saying there is substantial overlap between the ethical systems of Christianity and, and other world religions. There's substantial overlap even between Christianity and, and the, the, the modern religion today. But it, it is, and by that, I mean modern secular humanism. Evolution with their founding story, right? Their creation narrative, as it were. There's some overlap. Evolutionists, for example, will tell you that one of the reasons, or this is what they'll say, one of the reasons that human beings rose to the top of the pile is that we figured out that it's actually good for you, good for your survival, if you can figure out how to cooperate with other members of your, your family and tribe, right? That's a, a, our superior capacity for teamwork is one of the main reasons we reach the top of the pile. That's what they'll say. But here's the problem. That only explains why human beings cooperate with family members and racial equals, meaning those that are within their race or their ethnic tribe. It, it doesn't explain why the Christian ethic of Jesus, it doesn't come close to what Jesus is saying in terms of cooperating outside your family, outside your tribe, outside your ethnic boundary cooperating even so far, loving, extending benevolence even so far as to wrap in your enemies. There's, there's nothing in evolution that explains that. Evolution says partner with your family and your tribe to eat everybody else because it's, it's the survival of the fittest, right? So what I'm saying is here is where just Christianity climbs up into air that is rarefied. There's just nothing like this. It makes you wonder what our, what our culture will be like once the underpinnings have been completely erased. Will we go back to just family, tribe, eating other family, tribe? That's kind of what it looks like right now in American politics, isn't it? Will we go back to race wars? It's hard to know. But all I'm saying is, this is good air, as much as it is rarefied air, but, but also let's acknowledge that this, this is something we can't get to on our own. I mean, to love like this? To, to love people who hate you? To love people who persecute you? To, to love people who may want to kill you? Well, for that, you're going to need the grace that God supplies. Amen? And thankfully, that grace is available to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 5 that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit 
who has been given to us. According to the Bible, when you become a Christian, you get a new heart, and you immediately are filled with the indwelling Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit immediately opens up a communication channel between your heart and your Heavenly Father. It's like swallowing a cell phone that constantly auto-dials a single number. Apostle Paul talks about that in Galatians 4. He said, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So when you become a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit in you now, and He is constantly reaching up and establishing a communication link with the Father, and He is downloading content directly into your heart. He is downloading and installing the Jesus Code teaching you his wisdom, his grace, his love. Isn't that incredible? Friends, that's, that's how the gospel works. God gives to us that which he demands from us. God works in us that which he wants to find in us. He gives us the Son code through the Spirit so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Now, to be clear, I, I hope this goes without saying, this has nothing to do with gender. When, when Jesus you know, talks about the son code, when he talks about the spirit teaching us to relate to the father as a son, he, there's nothing to do with gender there. He's speaking in terms of representing and resembling God, as in that culture a son would do for the father. What Jesus is saying here is that as we download the son code through the Holy Spirit, we're going to be taught to live and love like God, such that people are going to look at us and they're going to say, man, you're like a chip off the old block. You are just like your father who is in heaven. That's the whole point here. This, This entire section of the Sermon on the Mount is about raising the bar so that we may be again the image and likeness of God. It's about being salt and light. No one is going to be impressed. No one is even going to notice if we love like the tax collectors, if we love like the Gentiles, if we love like the beasts of the field. Oh, but if we could love like God. If we could love our enemies. Pray for those who persecute us. Then everyone will see that we are children of our Father who is in heaven. Praise the Lord. So that's the first thing. That's the most important thing. We can only do this by the grace that God supplies. We can only do this as we grow in our gospel graces. But there's a second thing we need to say here, and that is that we can only scale these lofty heights if we make the decision today and every day to put one foot in front of the other. You know, sometimes the problem with these these ethical peaks. We get here and, and we, we kind of look up and, and we see how far removed that standard is from the level of our own life, from, from the instincts we identify in our own heart, and, and we despair. We think, you know, hey, that's okay for Jesus and for some of the stud apostles, but I'm just a regular person. How am I ever going to live like that? What's that old saying, right? Every, every journey of a 1,000 miles begins with a single step. You can do this. The Bible says that you can do this. By the grace that God supplies, you can do this. And, and listen, that's not me you know, doing my best Tony Robbins 
uh, impersonation. That's not me, you know, blowing motivational smoke at you. That's me blowing the gospel at you. That's me blowing 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 at you. Remember Peter, one of the original hearers of the Sermon on the Mount. Peter said in 1 Peter, or 2 Peter 1, 3, he said, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. All things through the knowledge of him. So this power comes to us through the gospel, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Are you seeing that? God's sitting up at the ethical summit, right? He, he lives above, he is enthroned above the twin peaks of the Sermon on the Mount. And he's looking down and he has given you everything you need to scale this height. And he's called you. He said, come on up here. Don't live at the level of the dogs. Come on up here. He's called you, he's equipped you, and you say, all right, well, I'll have a nap and God will just pull me up the mountain, right? No, Peter goes on to say, listen to what he says. For this reason, Peter says, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with, what's the end of the chain? Love, you seeing that? Peter says, here's our situation, right? God's up there. He's called us up there. He's equipped us. We have the oxygen we need. We have the little spiky spikes on our shoes. We got those poles. I don't know. I've never actually been mountain climbing. That's what I imagine people are doing. We got the ropes. We got the pulleys, right? We've got everything we need. God's called us. He's equipped us. Now he says, now what do we need to do? We need to put one foot in front of the other. We need to do this. Right? You can do this. You can do this. He lays out a step and a step and a step and a step and an end, and the end is love. Do you see that? Man, this is one of this is friends, this is one of the things we have to recapture in the evangelical church. The understanding that receiving and acting go together. We are the most receivy people in the history of Christendom. We receive and receive and receive and receive and receive and then we nap and we wake and we receive some more. And when you start talking about acting, people say, whoa, 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 I'm a gospel person here now, right? Don't get all legalism on me now. But when you read the Bible, you see what? It all begins with grace, but then there's there's. There's one foot in front of the other, right? This is gospel work, but it is gospel work. Stuff for you to do. One foot in front of the other. Progress to be made. So, to bring this in for a landing today, I just want to suggest two tiny little steps. Two tiny little steps that can get you going. That can get me going. That will help us make progress towards the standard of God's perfect and all-embracing Love. Here they are. Here are the two steps. First one is this. Bring someone outside your circle in. Remember, with the, the problem with the Pharisees is that they had shrunk the definition of neighbor to about four houses wide, right? And so Jesus is, is pushing back. He's, he's pushing the circle out wider. And so this week, I want you to push your circle out. Invite somebody in who was not already in. Have someone over for dinner who isn't already part of your circle. Invite someone you wouldn't normally associate with, somebody older than you, somebody younger 
than you, somebody with different political views than you, someone you would normally think of as other. Invite them in. Push your circle out one degree. That's, That's what I'm asking. Train yourself. Train yourself to think of more people as friends, loved ones, and neighbors. That's the call. Now, to be clear, let's point out, Jesus is not is not telling you not to love your friends and neighbors. This isn't substitution. This is addition. So I don't want you here saying, yeah, we got to stop hanging out with friends. Yeah, you know, no more having mom over for dinner. She's on her own. No, no. This is not substitution. This is addition. This is Jesus saying, hey, it's good that, it's good that you love your family. It's good that you, I'm, what I'm saying is, push that circle out a little wider. Start thinking of more people as friends and loved ones and family. And that's what the church is when the church is working, isn't it? Isn't that what the church is? You know, this morning we talked about, you know, kind of pushing our circle out a little bit to, to bring all the cottons in. I'm not related to, I don't know. I don't think I'm related to Matt. I'm not related to Tina. But they're my family now, right? That's what the church is. The church is teaching you to push your arms out a little bit wider, to stretch your circle out a little bit. And it doesn't just stop at the door. The Bible is very clear. It's, it's, the Bible says, love everyone, right? Do good to everyone. And then what does it say? Especially the household of faith. So it says, yeah, sure. Obviously, there are going to be a lot of people in here. But keep pressing it out. Keep pressing it out. One degree. Press it out. Bring others in. Wrap others in. Push your circle out a little bit. That's your first step. Second step is this. Make prayer your default response to hatred and opposition. Man, that's the part I stink at. I I told you, I struggle with this because I feel like it's easier to preach on stuff that you learned 20 years ago. Right, I felt actually pretty cool the last couple of weeks because I was preaching. I don't. This is me being cool, I guess. And uh, there it is, right there. Write that down. But I was preaching about stuff that God taught me 25 years ago. That's fun, isn't it? Because you can kind of look in the rearview mirror and be like, "Man, I was such a knucklehead," but now I got it all together. But here we get to these peaks, and I feel like saying, "Ah." I'm not sure I have a good story for this. Make prayer your default response to hatred. I have some bad stories. Uncle Paul isn't always very Christ-like in the car when people do mean things to him. Uncle Paul doesn't always have, you know, godly thoughts when I read something on the internet about myself. This is part of the Jesus Code too, isn't it? The Gospel of Luke tells us that as the Roman soldiers were nailing Jesus to the cross, he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Can you even imagine that? What kind of bar is that? Right? How far are we from that? If a government official today even looks at us crossways, right, what do we do? We get a nasty bumper sticker going on. It's always fun to see those in your church parking lot. And by the way, even if you don't spell it, I know what it says, okay? (laughs) It's not a sin if you don't use all four letters. (laughs) Stick a pound sign in there and golly. Right? And we put something up on Facebook. Oh, we write letters, don't we? 
but do we ever stop and pray? As I said, this is tough for me. When, when people attack me or oppress me or even inconvenience me, my immediate impulses are not sanctified. Not all the way, that's for sure. But I'm learning. I am learning. I'm doing lots of repenting, some, some growing, slowly but surely, as the Jesus code is downloaded and installed in me. I'm learning. I'm learning to make prayer my default response. I am learning that. I can tell you, I have started to pray. I've started to understand. I've started to see people the way God sees them. I've started to ask the question, you know, Lord, what's going on in this person's life that they would be this angry at me over that? I've started to understand that in the same way that the devil has done some stuff in me. You know our brother Craig, he always says, hurt people hurt people. Can you, can you, you can usually trace out your bad behavior, some of the things you struggle with most. Can't you usually trace it out to some stuff that's been done to you in the past? Sin done by you often manifests later as sin done, or sin done by you often manifests as sin done, no, I said that backwards. Sin done to you often manifests later as sin, sin done by you, doesn't it? One way or the other. And so I've started to ask now when, when people offend me or when people, I say, what's going on in their life, Lord? I understand that the devil is a roaring lion, prowling about, seeking whom to devour. He is leaving hurting, bleeding, broken people all over this road that I'm traveling. And so life's getting messy and bloody. But I'm learning to see that. I'm learning to understand that God loves people and Satan assaults and abuses people and this is the world we live in. And so instead of cursing those who curse me, slowly but surely I'm learning to pray, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. God, bring gospel people into their lives. God, show them kindness. Lord, open my eyes in case I've done something to give legitimate offense, for I am a sinner. Lord, have mercy. Indiscriminate kindness, boundary-busting benevolence, and enemy-blessing prayer. That is the way of Jesus. That is the way of witness. And this is the word of the Lord. Oh, God, help. Let's pray together. Oh, our Heavenly Father, thank you for showing us things we can't do. Lord, thank you for giving us that which you desire to find in us. Lord, do this gospel work in us by the grace through the spirit that you supply. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.